let me leave you with a final thought. Yes. More people on this planet earn their living by driving than in every other occupation on the entire planet. What are you going to do with all those people when none of them has a job? Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics they talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper? Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today is a recognized retired politician turned businessman in the transport infrastructure and property sector. We're going to focus on his transport credentials for this episode today. And what a great way to kickstart this series. This is the introduction of the new 2022 automotive series on Headstock, where we talk to recognized C-suite leaders, executive heads, and official representatives of governing bodies in the transport and automotive industry. But before we get into that, here's a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering, and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Steve Norris was Minister for Transport from 1992 to 1996 with a special responsibility for London. He led the delivery of the Jubilee Line extension, took the first Crossrail Bill through Parliament and authorised the first national cycling strategy. He saw rail privatisation from start to finish. He was twice the Conservative candidate for Mayor of London and served on Boris Johnson's Transport for London. He chairs and is a board member of a number of companies, as well as being a fellow in a number of institutions. Steve's time as Minister for Transport, coupled with his time in the Home Office, sparked the great passions which have characterised his life thereafter, namely a love of London as his adopted city, an obsession with the need for more and better quality infrastructure, and the value of quality in the built environment. Let's kickstart this series. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Steve to Heads Talk. Delighted to have you here today. Pleasure to be here. Great to kickstart this new series with you, Steve. I want to get right into this. Um, and please do elaborate on your choice. You've had a career in politics and business. Which one's easier? <laughs> business is much easier. <laughs> You've got a very clear objective. Um, you want to make your business a better business. You rely on logic. You rely on advice from people who have a stake in making sure that their advice is valuable. Um, you have goals which are clear. You have shareholders who need to be uh, satisfied with your performance. In, in other words, um, and, and, the, and the other great difference is, that particularly if you're a CEO, mm-hmm. is that people are there to basically deliver what you have established as the strategy for the business. If you compare that with politics, of course, <laughs> in politics, um, you say, I think it would be a great idea to do X or Y. 
And the civil servants say, well, yes, minister, but there are a lot of people who don't think that's a good idea. And other mm -hmm. departments might have an interest in saying their idea is much more important than yours. And, you know, I could go on. But yeah. one of the things you probably noticed is that in the UK, at least, it is reasonably commonplace for business leaders to be invited to join the government today, whatever party might be in power, so they could bring their experience and their talents to the management of government. Mm -hmm. On average, they last about a year before they just resign in complete frustration. They're normally given a peerage in, in this country because <laughs> they can call themselves Lord, whatever. Um, and, and jolly good that may be for them. But the reality is that they resign in frustration because they say, we should do something. And it never happens because the system below them has ignored completely what they've said and it's carried on doing what it's done for centuries. It really is the most frustrating business. And the reason why I think I managed to survive in both is by recognizing that when you're talking in the public sector, you have to take everybody with you. Mm. This is, you say, do it my way, and it's my way or the highway. Easy. I get it wrong, I get fired. I get right, I get a big bonus. In politics, it's just not like that. It's a much more complex proposition of keeping people on side who have very different views of the world, who have very different ambitions, all of that is much more significant. There's a book to be written. Yes. Why business leaders make such dreadful politicians and politicians make even worse business leaders. Does that have interest? Would you go back into it? Oh, there are okay. People often say to me, are you still in politics? And I say, you never leave. You never leave. <laughs> because the reason that you get into it is because you want to do something to make your country a better place. And when you see people doing things that you think are either crap <laughs> or unworkable or stupid, and yeah. sometimes all three, then you, know, you want to say, my God, I, I could do this. I could do this so much better. My mm -hmm. eyes are so You're probably wrong, but that doesn't, that doesn't um, change your enthusiasm for getting back into it. I've... Um, long i you know any friends of mine will tell you that i i've i've long said i really should be the next mayor of london even yeah. if i wasn't the next mayor of london's choice you know in the early 2000s <laughs> but i think before we even move on it's been sort of a sad indictment of politics i'd like to ask what has politics helped you in business you know you've moved from politics to business what would you say your life in politics or something you've done in politics has really helped you deal with a situation or deal with handling business? Or can you just, uh, it's a positive in politics. Well, I mean, funny enough, I'm going to start the answer by telling you what isn't particularly useful. And that's this idea that I must have a wonderful Rolodex of people I could ring up in government and say, my business has got this hugely great idea, please deliver it. Mm -hmm. Because that simply doesn't work that way. Um, ministers don't have that kind of authority. And if they did, the world would be a less attractive place, I can assure you. In a democracy, um, the Rolodex is irrelevant. And I never got into lobbying in any way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm not interested in doing that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, experience of politics helps a good CEO 
is to know how government is likely to react to initiatives which your business might benefit from, uh, because either these are things that government would be very supportive of, or mm -hmm. frankly, things where government is going to find lots of ways to say very politely no. Mm -hmm. and I think that can be a real asset. Uh, I think also, if you've been involved as I was, uh, I worked in four departments in government in what was then called the Department of the Environment, although it included local mm -hmm. government, then in the Department for Trade and Industry, then for very happy years in the Home Office, and then uh, for nearly five years in the Department for Transport. Uh, knowledge of all of those departments does help you when you're dealing with practical business mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't exaggerate it. I think one of the great things about the UK is that whatever else it is, efficient, inefficient, sometimes very slow. Nonetheless, it's very, it's very clean. You know, it's 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 a it's a country where our politics are very transparent. Some people would say almost too transparent, but nonetheless they are. I think on balance that's quite a good thing. Hmm. Leadership is part of it. I've always thought that good leaders are born and not made. You can't really teach leadership any more than anybody could teach me to paint an orange. <laughs> okay, you can't, you can't teach leadership, but would you, would you advise that it's best for individuals to spend a period within business before politics? Oh, very, very, very much. Uh, I think it's quite worrying that the average age of politicians is falling, that far too many politicians come from a background of university, mm. political sciences studies, then working in an MP's office, and this is a pretty well-known mm -hmm. position, of course, but then ending up in government in, in the House of Commons, making the big decisions around people's lives, mm -hmm. ever really having to have responsibility for turning the lights off when the last person mm -hmm. leaves, you, you're the leader. I think that is troubling. And uh, I remember that when I was first in the House of Commons in the early 80s, mm -hmm. most of my peer group, most of the members of Parliament on my side, had significant wartime experience sometimes in the military, mm -hmm. many times in business, they were successful people and they were giving back. We all, I think, had that sense of wanting to give back. Mm -hmm. These days I see modern politics as being more sort of recreational, uh, something that people do because it's interesting and exciting. And maybe it is, but the real issue is what can you give back to make the world a better place? Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. And just it all sounds very pie. It all sounds as if I'm being really pious. And, and you know, I'd also say because I think politics is utterly fascinating because it is about how difficult it is to make the world a better place. You know, somebody once said to all the really intractable, hugely difficult problems in this world, there is, in fact, a very straightforward single sentence answer. And the trouble is, it's always wrong. <laughs> and Politics, always people that don't want to implement it <laughs> okay um and briefly just tell my listeners i mean i i briefly in the introduction um mentioned this but i'm sure my listeners would like to hear it um some of it from from you yourself tell them about some of your transport achievements while in government 
Oh, well, at a ministerial level, um, there are three that you've already kindly mentioned that I'm particularly proud of. And I will say quite openly, genuinely proud of. The Treasury did not want to build the Jubilee Line extension. For those people who don't know London very well, it was the line that would connect Green Park right in the heart of the West End mm -hmm. to Stratford in the East End of London at a time when, although it's only now 20 odd years ago, nobody used to go to East London. That was where dragons lie. Um, the world always thought about West London, the West End, where I am situated at the moment, close to the heart of Westminster Abbey, which is literally, mm -hmm. this was what people thought of as London. Nobody went East. Mm -hmm. And yet, half the population of London lived East of Bridge. And mm -hmm. to me, the vital part about the uh, Jubilee Line extension was that it turned Docklands, which at that stage consisted essentially only of one major... It was like a graveyard, wasn't it? <laughs> in the Canary Wharf Tower, and was effectively, as you say, a bit of a graveyard, into somewhere that could be vibrant, could be full of people, could be full of business, could unlock a huge amount of potential. The Treasury said no. They would say things to me like, Surrey Canal Minister, it's not in Surrey and there's no canal. So, well, you've got me there. Yeah. Uh, they'd say the, the, the Greenwich Peninsula Minister, it's a contaminated coaling site. Nobody will go there. I said, well, you'd, you'd be surprised. Mm -hmm. That was to be now the home of the O2 exhibition yes, uh, yes. centre and, and massive and retail and, you know, uh, marvellous uh, uh, venue. Uh, it's a home of 20 odd, 5,000, 25,000 odd people who actually live there. There's a university there. It's a wonderful place. And of course, principally, the Jubilee Line extension connected to Stratford, which was not the Stratford on Avon of Shakespeare, <laughs> Stratford of East London, which opened out to some of the poorest communities in the entire country. People think London must be rich, but actually, uh, six of the 10 poorest boroughs in Britain are in London. Mm. That's because although people in those boroughs might earn a bit more than people in a poor borough, for example, in Manchester or Liverpool or Glasgow or, or wherever, in one of the big cities in the north, mm. the prices in London, of course, are much higher. Mm. There's real deprivation there. So injecting the ability to get the people without jobs to the jobs without people, and at the same time, opening up the potential of East London in terms yeah. of relatively so, low cost land and so on. It's, and it's, we built it. wake, yeah, it's pretty much awakened that part of, of London. Um, what, what, you know, you received an honorary degree. Was that related to it in any shape or form? In, in, in part, in part, yes, from the University of East London. I'm very yeah. proud of it because. I mean, not that I ever used the title. I love this idea of saying doctor. <laughs> Dr. Stephen. There are some people who you and I have probably met in this world who love to use an honorary doctorate as if it meant they could um, you know, fix your appendix. Yeah. I don't fall into that. So well, well, congratulations on that. I, I think I should, I should have actually done a little bit more research and find out in terms of the jobs, the, the numbers of jobs that were generated as a result of that. It would have been nice yeah. to, to have that to share with my audience. Yes. I'll probably share that in the um, episode notes thereafter once I've done some research on that. 
let's continue to look at transport in general. Um, we know transport priorities have changed since you were Minister for London. However, what has remained the same? What's the constant in that sector? It's a fairly open question, so I'd be interested to in what you've got to say to that. It's a good question. And I think the link is getting the people without jobs to the jobs without people. You know, transport in an urban context is mm -hmm. the glue that can bind a city together. Where you don't have good transport links, and this is the case, for example, often in the third world, major cities can consist of a centre which is incredibly wealthy and a favela or a, a diaspora, however mm -hmm. you want to describe it, which is frankly abject poverty. Mm -hmm. You see it in India, you see it in South America, you see it in Africa. And I think the key in London is that because we have here a very good uh, transport system, which is affordable, and which incidentally I don't claim the credit for, this goes back mm -hmm. well hundred years, but it is in general, I'd say probably the best public transport system of any great city in the world. I think it provides that glue. It allows people from nowadays from West London to work in East London and vice versa. Mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. in West London but work in the city, to work in the West End, to work wherever the jobs are. That's the real key, getting the people without jobs mm -hmm. and jobs without people. Right. Okay. So you know, I've mentioned at the beginning, from a politician to now a successful businessman, and you consult in that space. So what are leaders, heads, C-suites talking to you about in the transport sector around CO2 emissions? That's the big in at the moment. And, and what are their concerns? Well, they said all of the C-suite leaders are ambitious to improve the efficiency of, for example, the rail system. Hmm. Whereas Mr. Musk has persuaded the world that EVs, uh, electric vehicles, might be the answer in terms of reducing carbon emissions in the car. Um, the railway industry is lagging mm. behind that. Uh, of course, we have electrified lines where specific trains can use either overhead cables or occasionally third rails to deliver effectively emission-free uh, transportation, but there's a long, long way to go. There's far too much of our current rail system which relies on effectively diesel and that's obviously something that's got to change uh, in fact we have some of our network diminishing and regarded rather as heritage which actually of course uses coal i think the challenge there is around the power weight ratio i don't want to be boring but the big problem is that mr musk might be able to run a car with a battery, it'll be a much heavier car than normal. Mm -hmm. It's hard to see how, if you need to run, for example, 38 ton trucks, yeah. you never make those electric at the moment when the battery will weigh seven and a half tons. Uh, and we need to find new solutions. Generally, people are looking at hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah. And in particular, green hydrogen, in other words, where the hydrogen is created by using green energy to separate the hydrogen proton from oxygen, which mm -hmm. 2 it being obviously water. So water in, water out, and infinite energy is, is an attractive proposition. And that's where a lot of research is going. That's where a lot of businesses are now starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. And where I think the world in heavy mobility terms, that's yeah. rare, and the heavy end of truck mobility plant, you know, construction plant, 
can't use EV either. Yeah, yeah. An alternative. And then there's the whole question of whether we shouldn't be saying, well, never let the uh, perfect be the enemy of the good. If we can, for example, inject some green hydrogen into what we might call grey hydrogen, that's the kind of hydrogen we get from natural yeah. gas, from yeah. fracking gas or whatever, then doesn't that massively reduce the amount of carbon? And the answer is yes, it does actually. So maybe there's some interim measures, but what they're all concerned about is meeting the climate change objectives. You don't get any serious C-suite leader now who doesn't recognize that climate change and decarbonization are not the absolute musts of future policy. And the question is, I suppose, the speed with that you can get there, yes. the practicability of the solutions that are being proposed. Okay, you talked about speed. We know where things are roughly with the um, EV solutions. Why is hydrogen lagging behind? Well, what is the issue there? Well, the issue is, first of all, that if you want to produce green hydrogen, you have to have that combination of solar, wind, hydro um, that can produce the green energy mm -hmm. uh, that then creates green hydrogen. And then when you've got it, hydrogen is very volatile. So you have to be able to either put it through an electrolyzer to generate energy immediately, or you have to store it and then move it. And at the moment, the cost of doing that makes it less attractive than standard diesel. Mm -hmm. The so development is going into how you can actually move the hydrogen that you create from where you create it to where you want to use it. A lot of development going on in that space. All right. Okay. Because I think one of the guests I spoke to last year talked about decentralized and centralized um, advantages and disadvantages in terms of the use of hydrogen, which was a fascinating conversation. And yeah, I, I will probably send a link to that for you if you're interested in, in listening to that. Also, I'm sure that would be very interesting to listen to. And actually, for what it's worth, this whole business of how we store energy that we create from, for example, yeah. wind is also a massive issue because that calls mm. person the idea of battery farms where we're not generating the energy but we're storing it for future use that becomes part of this green mm. experience yeah. interesting. interesting and just to finish off there what other um, hot topics or issues that they're talking to you about in your capacity as um, an advisor or strategist well, in transport terms, there are some really interesting questions posed by the pandemic, ironically, mm. by events in Ukraine or elsewhere. And that's, for example, around whether we've actually reached peak rail. Um, for example, there are those who say the growth of the eight journeys a month or 12 journeys a month card rather than the standard 20 journeys a month, what generally season tickets are sold on mm -hmm. transport would be uh, 20 day season tickets so that they cover four weeks of five days a week who does five days a week into the office these days you know, calls into question a huge amount of societal change yeah. which was beginning to happen before the pandemic in the last quarter of 2019 we saw in london that whilst employment was perfectly static the amount of transport that people were using appeared to be falling. That's the combination of rail and bus. Mm. Of course, turned out to be that Thursday was almost as busy a going home night as Friday. Okay. Now, what we've seen 
Therefore, is during the pandemic, people saying, gosh, I want to get out of this really nice apartment I've got, but I feel as if I'm in a prison. And they went to buy somewhere out in the country where uh, everything was fine as long as you can go for those long walks, which us you know, city dwellers were denied. <laughs> but where people now realize that actually pigs do smell and agriculture is not all just, you know, verdant fields. And so actually we're now seeing the move back into city. <laughs> because people are seeing that maybe city life was a little bit more exciting. Or more well, there's always greener on the other side, isn't it? And, but I think more importantly, it's around the degree to which remote working is actually practicable. It's really interesting that the world's biggest corporations, many of them, of course, around Silicon Valley and whatever, mm -hmm. are actually saying, we want to see you all in the office. Uh, uh, Stevenson Harwood, a London firm of solicitors, mm -hmm. told their staff that they could work from home five days a week if they would accept a 20% pay cut. Now, without going into the issues for individuals, if I'd been an employee of that firm, I would have rushed into the office and stayed there. <laughs> because if they regard the relationship with their staff as being so mechanical, the next thing they'll do is to say, well, why don't we just hire people in Bangalore or South Africa? Yes. Yes. where you get just as good quality and you'll exactly. have even cheaper people. Exactly. So this is a multifaceted issue and C-suite leaders now, uh, anywhere near the transportation space or the property space or the infrastructure space, which are the three areas that I've, yeah. I've concentrated on my entire life, are mm -hmm. asking these big societal questions. Mm -hmm. Have we got to the end of the pandemic? Are we merely at the start? It recalls that old... Um, uh, that old chestnut of when Nixon asked Cho Enlai, you know, what he thought of the French Revolution, and Cho Enlai said it's far too early to say. I mean, <laughs> actually, it turns out that Cho Enlai, I thought that Nixon was referring to the revolution in, in, in Paris uh, in 1968. <laughs> but the point is, I think it may be far too early to say what the long term societal impacts not in health terms. Yeah. I totally agree with you, but this is, this is a conversation I've been having offline, you know, not on the Headswap podcast, but it's something that I've noticed in terms of the working at home strategy. If you're working for corporations and you're working at home, then that remote working could be in Hong Kong. That remote working could be in India at a fraction of the salary that you're earning in New York. So you have to be careful. And, and, and I think you're right, this conversation isn't over, this whole situation isn't over. I watch you know, very carefully what's happening in that space because corporations will want to tighten their belts for various reasons. And that is one of the ways to do it. Yeah, absolutely so. Yeah. And interesting that um, we saw originally how most of the outsourcing of call centers went to India. Mm. But then when it was possible to uh, outsource to areas even north of the border in Scotland and in uh, you know, South Africa, as I say, and elsewhere mm -hmm. in the English speaking world where perhaps people had a better grasp from birth of the language, mm -hmm. um, got the efficiencies, we got the cost savings, uh, but we happened to simply move into different markets. I agree with you. I think, however, of course, about small businesses that I know, who employ maybe a dozen people, mostly tech-based businesses, yeah. where they never see the whole team together. I mean, I know of a small business 
where two of the team are in Brazil, uh, one is in the Philippines, two are in Norway, and I forget where the other two are, yeah. but the point is this is a new really, feature. Yeah, new, a new global operation, isn't it? Absolutely. It is. You know, Steve, when I knew you'd be a guest on Headstalk, I wanted to ask you this question about the current state of the railways, and I'm really looking forward to your response to this one. So, do you think it, the railways, should be renationalised? No, because I think government is a hopeless runner of operations. Uh, government is very good at policy and absolutely useless at delivery. Uh, I am not one of these people for whom, uh, you know, privatization or nationalization is a matter of religious conviction. Unlike uh, the Pope, I don't want to privatize the army. Um, unlike many other people, I'm perfectly happy for social security to be dispensed by public servants. There are a great many jobs which I'm quite happy are in the public sector. But when you're offering a service like rail, the origin of the privatization of the railway came from the clearest possible evidence of year-on-year -year decline in ridership going from the end of the Second World War in 1945 all the way through mm -hmm. the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, until in 1996, privatized the railway. And from that point to today, effectively, or certainly yeah. pre-pandemic, I should say, we've seen increased ridership because we introduced the commercial incentive to operators to get more people on the railway. In the end, the private sector set a goal, given a budget, delivers a better service. Uh, I mean, I happen to think that applies in many other areas of government, but just strictly in terms of rail. The issue is not whether we should privatize or renationalize the railway, it's how we make the system work better. And the fault has been that the Department for Transport sees itself as having a vital role in managing our railway, whereas most people in the industry see the optimum being almost no involvement of the Department for Transport in the way railways are run. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Short-term franchises of the sort that became prevalent in recent years are no more than a ticket collector's license. <laughs> have a seven-year franchise to run a railway. I have two huge problems. One is that I couldn't justify capital expenditure to paint the public toilets on the station. I'll never get my money back over seven years. And secondly, of course, I'm required to make a one-off bet on what I think ridership will do in the subsequent seven years. Mm -hmm. I get it right, but more often than not, life being as it is, I'll get it wrong. If I get it right, I might very well prove to be right seven years later, but I'll lose the million or two million that I spend preparing a bid for the franchise. And the person who outbid me will also lose because they will find that maybe the growth wasn't there that they expected. Seven-year franchises are just useless. And the most success successful of all of the railway franchises, of course, proves this, which is Chilton Rail, which was given a 20-odd year franchise oh. the first we started. Right. So, so, you're saying, so, you're, sorry, so you're saying extending franchises? Oh, extension, I would, I, my personally, I've always we should treat 
uh, railway railway operations in the same way that we treat water companies, electricity companies, gas companies, and so on, which is we grant lifetime concessions. We sell a concession. And if the company does well uh, and creates profits for its investors, then it will no doubt continue to operate. If it fails, well, then it will have to sell um, to somebody who will buy it cheaply. And the function of government would be to ensure that the new buyer is a fit and proper person. But essentially, uh, a, an owner of this concession would be able to take a 20, 30, 40 year view of how to improve the quality of the railway, not just for the benefit of the passengers, but for the benefit of the shareholders as well, because the two can be exactly aligned. At the moment, you can't align the two. It's crazy to ask the private sector to make a bet on a seven or even 10 year franchise. It doesn't work. And that's why people like Sir Brian Souter, the founder of Stagecoach and a great industry guru in my personal experience, I know Brian very, very well. And mm -hmm. um, Brian will say, I got out of the industry because I can't make that kind of crazy bet. Uh, Dean Finch, who was uh, for a long time chief executive of National Express, one of the other six great mm -hmm. transport companies in the country, once said, if you see me bid for a rail franchise, shoot me. <laughs> the whole proposition around seven-year franchises is ridiculous and, frankly, has got to change. Now, whether the change is the famous Great British Rail, lots in the name, but absolutely nothing, of course, the yeah. changes uh, that's proposed in what's called the Shapps-Williams report. I've always wondered whether Grant had actually read the Shapps-Williams report. <laughs> Very good at putting his name to it. It is, I think, questionable. I don't think it will survive because I'm not sure it itself identifies the underlying mm -hmm. fundamental problem, which is that the Department for Transport likes control and the rest of the industry knows that the dead hand of government is exactly what the industry doesn't need. Right. Okay. And, and I suspect there are probably more other rail reforms that we we'll talk about on this yes, one. No doubt. But uh, for example, you know, the, the Department for Transport runs through a network rail, some of the principal stations. Yeah. Yeah. But there are really thousands of suburban and rural stations which are not offering the kind of service that a decent bus shelter offers. Um, they're pretty isolated. Uh, there's no technology there. There are no staff there that can be afforded. Uh, we need to have a system where an operator has a real interest in making sure that those places are at least attractive enough to passengers. Mm. There are actually places where people want to go, where they know they can rely on the service because reliability turns out to be the most important characteristic of any public transport system. That's what people need beyond anything. They don't care if the train is shiny and blue or whether it's black or grey. They just want to know that it's going to turn up at a given time. It's going to get them to the destination in a given time as well. So, so, so while we're at it, what is your opinion on HS2? I'm a great believer in HS2 because uh, unlike the name, which implies that it's all about speed, it's never been about speed, it's about capacity. Actually, if all you're interested in is speed, here's my advice, don't stop. <laughs> if you go from London to Manchester, for example, and you didn't stop, you could do it in remarkably quick time and HS2 trains will be even faster. Yeah. If I didn't think there was one mistake in the early days, it's setting the goal of 400 kilometers an hour, I'd have said 250 was perfectly okay. And what that also means, of course, is the slower the train goes, 
the more easy it is to send it. Yeah. Aren't, you, aren't you concerned about the ever-increasing budget? Oh, well, no, not particularly. This may sound, um, it may sound very easy to wave the hand and say, I don't care about the budget. Of course I care about the budget. But the question is, was that because when this was sold to the parliamentary panel that considered the original railway bill, mm -hmm. was perhaps done on a very optimistic assessment of price? Now we need to now see what the real cost of the proposition is. And I can only say that I think it's the latter. I think, for example, to have said we would only need two billion to acquire the necessary property was just crass. It was wrong. That was never going to be right. We should have been doing right. a lot more during the parliamentary process. Would I go from Birmingham to Leeds? No. I never believed that that was right. But that was part of the plan, wasn't it? Or is it still part of the plan? I think it's been scrapped. That bit has been scrapped. It has effectively now been scrapped, exactly. Yeah. And I think that was long overdue and could have been killed off years ago before all the East Midland cities, uh, Nottingham, Derby, yeah. uh, and uh, Leicester, had made preparations for its arrival, which, of course, in the end, have been frustrated. No, I think uh, going very quickly from London to Manchester to, to, to Birmingham to Manchester makes a lot of sense because it's about capacity. Believe it or not, a lot of people say, well, I got a train from Manchester and there are still some spare seats. That really isn't the answer. When you look at capacity, it's about, for example, releasing a lot of capacity on the West Coast main line to be mm -hmm. able to deliver more freight, to deliver more intercity services than we currently do and let people who simply want to make those big journeys do do it separately on a separate piece of line that only stops twice. All right, okay. You know, I actually put out the episode of purely about this topic because there's so many more things I'd like to talk to you about, but I'm just conscious of the time. Um, let's look to the future for transport. As Transport Minister, I'm sure you can tell me about the hot issues which you've just done during your tenure, and even talk about the current issues again, which we've just talked about in terms of the drive for sustainable solutions. Can you hazard a guess at what will be the problems of the future in the transport sector? We can narrow it down to the UK or talk globally in an overarching way, if you like. Well, one will be cleaning up the transportation sector because it's a very significant emitter of carbon. It's about a quarter of all the carbon that we emit. And clearly because no serious commentator uh, would argue that carbon is the big problem in terms of climate change, we have to deal with it. Aviation, for example, still remains effectively untouched. There are initiatives to introduce more hydrogen into current aviation fuel, and maybe that's yeah, the yeah, isn't it? But we haven't really even touched that. So I think in terms of aviation, there's a long way to go in terms of climate change. As far as surface transport systems are concerned, again, it's about producing systems which are clean, uh, but I do think that as the trend towards cities actually is globally growing, 70% uh, of the world's population currently live in cities. We used to think that that was something that would be achieved by about 2030. It's happening now. Then you have to recognize that having the ability to take a big city like Delhi uh, and give it the kind of public transport network, mm -hmm. which allows the air to be breathable in that city, and people from the poorer parts of the city to get to the places where there are jobs. Those are still huge challenges. I mentioned Delhi, of course, because if you remember in Delhi, it was only when the cricket in Delhi was disrupted because the air quality was oh, so yes. foul that the fast boaters couldn't breathe. God, when was that? 
take the issue seriously. When was that? I remember hearing about that, but when was that? Oh, it's, it's, oh, it's a couple of years ago. I mean, and it, it, it was a serious proposition. The air is so foul, and it's foul because of transportation in the main, and of course, in the domestic field. I'm not yeah. Yeah. And do you remember during the pandemic where everything was locked down, even in that area, that for the first time in was it 30 years they could actually see a mountain range for a certain location? Do you remember yes. that? <laughs> there are things like that which suddenly emerge when people yes. realize that yeah. air quality, uh, for example, in Los Angeles, famously, you know, where there's a sort of carpet of, yeah. of, of cloud across the city until you get high up into the hills and realize that there's a city down there you can see that that's got <laughs> Yes, I yes. think those are the big decarbonization, climate change remain the big, big issues, but also humanizing these great centers of population so that there are opportunities for everyone, whether you're yeah. rich or whether you're poor, whether you're an arrival or a lifelong citizen, that you can use the city in a way that allows you to optimize your life and the optimi optimize the lives of the mm. I think those are the big challenges there. Oh, thanks, thanks for that. It's interesting that you mentioned someone in the aviation business because I have got a, a senior individual in Airbus and I want to, want to talk to him about that. So look out for that episode when that comes soon, sometime after yours and, yeah, and see if he answers the questions that you're raising in terms of how slow they are in terms of getting on that sustainability agenda. I think the problem is not that they're any less interested. It's just that the problem is much more acute. The problem is battery power is it's bloody heavy. So you can't, you know, the reason you can't operate a piece of JCB plant um, with EV is because a JCB plant vehicle, like a three-seat digger dozer, is operating in a field, for God's sake. That's the whole point. It's not operating down the high street. Mm. And as it weighs 17 and a half tonnes and the battery would need to weigh another seven and a half, and, and how, and given that it would be impossible to even recharge the battery unless you took the thing off the mm -hmm. side, you know, whatever, you know, problems like that, we're not even scraping the surface with. We're and, not, we're not. So, we're you not. know, heavy plant, really heavy trucks, and aviation, where you're carrying 300 people in a tube yeah. across the Atlantic, you know. We're no, nowhere near finding an answer there. And even if you look at the EV solution, because at the moment that's sort of golden boy, the EV solution, when you look at the batteries, obviously they have a lifespan. We haven't, we haven't right. reached it yet. What are we going to do with all of this recycling of these batteries? Uh, exactly. It, precisely. I, 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 that's a perfectly good question to ask. It's quite interesting because in London, the taxi drivers have bought these very expensive new vehicles. Yeah. That are, you yes. know, you've got to now buy an electric vehicle if you want to run a you know, London yeah. taxi. They're beginning to say, actually, this is a bit of a dud deal. Uh, we're, we're hearing stories of people having to pay 15 or 20,000 pounds to change the battery after about five years, five and a half, six years. So everybody's saying, well, I'll lease it, but I'm certainly never going to own it. I think, you know, we haven't begun to understand the real ramifications. The great thing about yeah, it's, us it's is these terrific. terrific, yeah, terrific it, selling these ideas, but lousy about hmm. Yes, and last year I had the CEO of um, LEVC that uh, owns Hackney Carriage, and I probably will put that question to him when I talk to him again this year for this series. Mm. Um, let's conclude this episode of Ed's Talk with a question for the series and ask to all the guests, you can briefly, if you can, um, Steve, 
when do you think autonomous vehicles will be in wide use across the globe for recreational purposes? Or perhaps since we've been talking and concentrating on London, um, if you just want to talk about that, just give us a year and why. 2060. 2060, oh, you're not as optimistic. And the reason is, <laughs> Go on. the reason is because in theory, we could all be driving at 100 miles an hour, um, nose to tail, if every vehicle were synchronized and we were all completely sold on the idea that we simply dialed up transportation. Mm -hmm. But all the evidence is that actually every time that technologists tell us that they've got something interesting to say, real life intervenes. People actually are now driving cars which are doing a lot more for them than they ever were. The wipers will come on when it rains without you touching anything. The headlight beam will lower if you, without you doing anything if traffic comes towards you. Vehicles are starting to be able to park themselves. You touch a button and the tailgate opens. Um, all of these kind of advances, particularly, for example, Lanus's technology, which says if you happen to be dozing off on the motorway and you move outside a lane, the system will shake you and your wheel will yeah. shake you. Yeah. They will wake up and whatever. Jolly good. All of this suggests that making driving an easier proposition is going to happen. But that move to, um, to connected, connected autonomous belies two issues. One is what happens when 10% of the fleet is connected autonomous and 90% of it is human driven. And what happens when 90% of the fleet is autonomous and 10% of it is human driven? At what point do we get to the stage where we say it is illegal to drive your own car? Uh, at what point is it proper to say that the car will be able to take itself up a mountain drive to your remote lodge in the middle of some Anatolian mountain, um, as distinct from being able to drive on a well-marked freeway? At what point will we be able to overcome the problem of a road which is carpeted in snow or carpeted in flood rain and so on? I think those experts who are now saying it's going to be much later before we've all got over all this, I'll be long dead. Yeah. And it will be the driving, you know, will not exist anymore. It'll all be done uh, through CAV technology. I think it's much, much later than people think. And let me leave you with a final thought. Yes. More people on this planet earn their living by driving than in every other occupation on the entire planet. What are you going to do with all those people when one of them has a job? Well, that was a that was a fantastic pause because I'm actually thinking, what the hell are we going to do with these people when none of them have a job? Goodness me, that's uh, more problems ahead of us there, Steve Norris. Uh, a great start to the new series. Many thanks for your time and insights. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders and heads of multinational. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.